0: stay hungry, stay foolish.
1: Today's book is about why people want what they want. It's based on the notion that in the end, we will either be masters or slaves of our desires, and that we can choose the outcome. True freedom, our guest argues is the freedom to want what is best for ourselves and for others. The ability to desire in a healthy way is not something we're born with, but a freedom we must earn. It's a great pleasure to welcome author of wanting the power of mimetic desire in everyday life. Luke Burgess, welcome to the show. Hey, and thanks for having me, man. It's fantastic to have you on the show. I was telling you just before we came on how I absolutely enjoyed the book. I had an extra three days because I recorded last week's show a bit early, which was great because I got through it and I took my time, which is don't usually have the luxury of that time for our audience, I have a copy up for grabs, just sign up to the innovation show.io. And you will be in with a chance of winning today's fantastic book. So Luke, you tell us at the start a little bit about your backstory, because it's very important about how you got into this mimetic desire, which we'll get into in a sec. But you talk about how you spent your 20s starting companies change, chasing the entrepreneurial dream that Silicon Valley enshrined in the 90s, then something odd happened when one of the companies you had founded collapsed, and rather than grieve, you experienced intense relief. That was when you realised you hadn't found anything at all. And your previous successes had felt like failures. But now, failure felt like a success. I loved how you phrased that and it teases up beautifully for your backstory. I left the, the corporate world, I left the a job on
0: Wall Street, a great job on Wall Street, uh, to go found A company in Silicon Valley in my early twenties. And I somehow had this idea that this was gonna bring me some degree of freedom, that I would just be free, I'd be my own boss and CEO, I could do everything my own way. And it turned out that I ended up being more of a slave than ever before (laughs) as a startup founder. And what I was a slave to were, you know, the mimetic forces. And we'll get to that word later, but I was a slave to my own desires and my own misunderstandings about what it was that I wanted. And I ended up feeling less free than ever before. So I started a series of companies. Some had great success. One was a massive failure. One I just got totally bored with. And I got to a point in my late 20s where I was like, you know, what is going on here? Like, I'm more miserable than ever when everybody's telling me that I should be happy. I had some financial freedom. I was able to craft a lifestyle in any way that I wanted, quite frankly, yet I was totally miserable. And one of the reasons I was miserable was because I had like lost uh, enduring enthusiasm and desire. I would get really excited about something one day and then not be excited about it the next, whether that was a girl or whether it was a company or whether it was like a new hobby that I'd just taken up. So I was kind of like a real dilettante, like just having experiences, traveling all over the world, starting things, and then becoming disillusioned. And I tell, one of the stories that I tell in the book is about, I had a blow up uh, of a business deal. And when the deal blew up, I thought it was definitely what I wanted. And it, it blew up, and this was a financial disaster for me. So there's nothing good about this in the moment. And I was mortified, and I did grieve. For a few minutes <laughs> um, but it was one of the interesting things about our, our cultures is we don't grieve very well uh, but that's a whole other story that I won't get into but I I, I I grieved for just a short period of time and after that little period of shock and awe that I went through this intense feeling of relief just washed over me I was at dinner with at an Italian restaurant and I I felt this sense of enormous like freedom and I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was. But what it was, it was the freedom of not having to go after and strive for these goals that I ultimately didn't even care about, you know, to to turn my company into a certain kind of company that got written up in a certain business publication, things like that, or, or, or just like starting, I, I ended up getting into business lines in my company that I didn't even like want to be in. I just went where the money was and eventually wasn't happy or proud of the work that I was in. So without the business deal blowing up, I think that if that hadn't happened, I would have continued down a certain path for, I mean, God knows how long, right? It might've been nine, 10, 11, 12 years without the realization. So the, the blow up, took on the appearance of a great gift for me and that it set me free from these certain chains that I wouldn't have been able to free myself from. And, you know, often in my life, that's the way that things have worked. Uh, things happen to me that, that are perhaps I don't fully understand them at the time. But then I go through a process and I look back and I'm like, ah, you know, uh, there's, 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 there's learning and growth that can come from that. And I was disrupted in, in the best possible way that allowed me to
1: to make the change that I didn't even know I needed to make. The language you use in the book is clear that you've read widely and deeply, going right back to the roots of writing as well, which you do. But I, I am, I'm I doing this uh, thing with my kids at the moment. I read them a couple of pages of the Greek myths at nighttime. And uh, it's it's a real... It's a real selfish thing for me to do because I'm I'm enjoying it as much as them because I'm, I'm reading back in the past, and I, I I love in particular I did my college thesis in French on uh, le mythe Sisyphe the myth of Sisyphus by Albert Camus, and it really came to mind in that in that striving that you were constantly pushing the boulder up the hill, and then it would come back and crush you over again every time you reached the top of the hill. So instead of getting to the other side and discovering freedom it just rolled back on you. And again, and and I loved how you phrased this similar thing. You said, a mentor once suggested that you look at a set of ideas that would explain why you'd come to want all the things that you wanted, and how your wanting so easily entrapped you in cycles of passion, followed by disillusionment, that Sisyphus effect. And the source of those ideas was a fairly obscure, but influential academic one I'd never heard of René Girard known as the new Darwin of the social sciences. And this was a breakthrough moment for you and your thinking and what ultimately gave us this book.
0: Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned Sisyphus because I almost named that section of the book like My Sisyphean Adventure or something like that, and I changed it. Uh, And Camus says at the very sort of end of, of... you know, his reflection, you know, one must imagine Sisyphus happy to have to continue doing this. Um, and I don't quite agree with that, because I, I do think there's a way to not have to push the boulder to the top of the mountain over and over and over again. Um, so, René Girard, uh, and your, your French pronunciation is far better than mine. Uh, so, René Rene Girard, <laughs> I lived there for a long time. So, René Girard was a French academic who came to the States shortly after World War II. And ended up staying in the U.S. his whole life. He originally was at Indiana University. He went to Johns Hopkins. And he landed at Stanford, where he was a mentor to some pretty famous people, one of them being Peter Thiel, who's a co-founder of PayPal. Uh, Gerard's background was in history. He got his Ph.D. In, in history. But he was an autodidact. So he ended up studying philosophy, sociology, science, theology, um, you name it. I mean, he was just very widely read, classic literature. There's a lot of very smart people out there. You know, smart people are a dime a dozen. But Gerard was able to think differently, I think in part because he he just drank from so many different wells and so many different sources and he had this unique ability to like put it all together and and see insights that people that are super siloed sometimes miss in their very own discipline. So Gerard's fundamental insight into the nature of human desire was something that You know, philosophers have missed for thousands of years. Aristotle noted that humans are the most imitative creatures in the world. Our powers of imitation are far greater than any animal, even the great apes. They don't even come close to like the imitation powers of a a human infant. Uh, But they'd never realized that the imitation goes deeper than the surface level of imitation. Like we all know that we imitate and that's how we know language. It's how we adult cultural norms. It's how we grow. Uh, we imitate facial gestures. You know, if, if we don't do that, we kind of have awkward social interactions. So this is this is pretty common knowledge. But what Girard put his finger on is that our imitation goes to the level of, de- of desires. We actually imitate the desires of other people. And in fact, this is the primary mode of human wanting. Because after our basic Needs are fulfilled, which we don't necessarily need, um, to imitate anybody to fulfill those basic needs. I mean, if I'm dying of thirst in the desert, um, and I see water, you know, I have, I have an instinctual response to go to that water and drink. Same with hunger, same with coldness and warmth. So we have an instinctual basis for many of our, our needs, but in the realm of desire. You know, we're, we're talking about abstract things, we're talking about stocks, we're talking about lifestyles, we're talking about careers and body image and and all of these kinds of things. Gerard's insight was that we look to other people all the time. These other people are basically models of desire for us, uh, and usually at a pre-conscious or subconscious level, we take cues from them about what's important and what's desirable. And we imitate their desires without necessarily knowing that we're doing it. And these other people render things more or less desirable for us. And we convince ourselves that, you know, it's just us, you know, that like, I'm hyper rational, I think I'm smart. And I've chosen, you know, to pursue this thing, uh, based on merely its objective qualities. And it could be true. That, you know, there are certain things out there because they're beautiful, because they're, they're true or whatever, like that I'm more attracted to them um, on some level, but I'm usually not accounting for the models of desire and the way that they heavily influence the way that I perceive these objects and the way that I choose objects to, to pursue,
1: so I'll, I'll stop there. Because as you know, there's a lot here. Yeah, there's so, so much. We're only getting started. I, it dawned on me that I I often talk about different types of innovation in that there's one where you're a painter, and, and the painter, you've a blank comments in your crate. So it's kind of invention. But then there's one where you're a sculptor, and that involves taking away so improving a process or taking away some friction for the customer. But what what I the mental model I got when I was reading was, you're not telling us to do anything to build, what you're actually telling us to do is is take stuff away. And also almost like we're the block of wood that needs to be sculpted to find out who we truly are and, and what really drives us. But I, I pulled a quote here that beautifully expresses this and also expresses, actually, one of the reasons I was so keen to have you on the show, because you're a contrarian in your world. So as a as a startup founder, as a successful one, as one that uh, that's had the failures and recovered from them. That's, that's a great model for society. But you've gone the other way and go, don't follow me. And you say here, it's hard to be a contrarian, it's even harder to take contrarian action, to question the dominant dominant narrative, to be honest with yourself to tell the truth, even when the immediate outcome is pain. I loved what you said there, because that will resonate. It resonated hugely with me. But it also resonate with so many of our audience who are those people who are either on their journey towards being the contrarian or else are getting there in some way.
0: Mm. Yeah, so you know, being a contrarian is kind of a, uh, almost a trendy thing to be these days. Uh, There's some pretty popular contrarians. So It's easy to kind of, you know, tweet things out and kind of have a persona where you're kind of constantly, you know, being the antagonist and having contrarian views. But I I came upon a situation early in my life where to be a contrarian, uh, I had to have skin in the game and there was a great cost for me to pay by pursuing what I thought was true uh, and what I thought was uh, going to allow me to... Discover who I was and take a path that was very different than the one I was being told I should take uh, among, you know, the one that my investors uh, told me I should take, which is basically to pump up the value of my company. Um, and, you know, my fellow entrepreneurs, uh, who thought that I was crazy because I, I decided that I needed to go back and, um, and read and spend less time, you know, coding and, and, and running my, my companies and more time, just kind of drinking of some wisdom that I thought I needed in order to kind of, um, in order to evolve in order, frankly, in order to evolve as an entrepreneur. And it was a very lonely place to be in, you know, when, when I, I had this conviction that there was a path that I needed to walk and I didn't have a lot of support for walking it. I mean, the, the mentors that I went to, told me that I was kind of crazy and I basically I decided to take a little sabbatical and step away and do some really hard work and try to get to the bottom of what had been driving me. And I was frankly discouraged from, from doing that. So, you know, one of the important things I've learned in life is you almost have to filter feedback, like be, be careful because not everybody's necessarily looking out for your best interest. Uh, and you have to be able to kind of parse out, you know, everybody has, everybody has opinions. Everybody has advice um and if you start listening to too much of it you, you you don't actually do the thing that you need to do. So in my case, you know, it was, it was painful and it was lonely. Uh but it led me over the course of it didn't happen right away, but it led me over the course of, you know, years, roughly 5 years to come out the other side um just with a much more grounded with a better understanding of kind of who I wanted to be as an entrepreneur. Who is interested in in ideas more than the I think the average entrepreneur is, who's interested in you know what's how can I really build things that are that are good for the human person that lead to human flourishing, Uh, and there are trade offs involved in that right. Um, There are certain companies I think that might be able to you know give me a quicker hit uh, you know and and a quicker profit. Um, but I'm interested in, in building things for the long term that contribute to a real healthy human ecology. So it's one thing to kind of you know play the role of a contrarian. Uh, it's another thing to actually have to to do some things that uh, and make
1: some sacrifices that hurt. I thought of this where where you talk about if you think about most things we end up doing in life, they're they're we're copying or we're imitating, as you say, but we fall into them. And you say most of our desires are like rom com love we fall into them, we fall into love rather than choose it. And you highlight here that in the language, in every language in the world, people fall in love, nobody rises up to it. And that's a really important point in a mimetic sense. So this concept of mimesis, because this mimesis is actually what changed your whole world, but it also changed Gerard's life in the 50s, Thiel's, as you mentioned, in the 80s, and yours in the noughties. And it's this thing called mimetic desire. So to give our audience some context, I'd love if you brought us through this great discovery that you had. So, you know, that idea that we fall in love, you know,
0: in almost every language in the world, that's the language used to describe that that process. Um, the reason that's important is that it's getting to the heart of desire, right? I mean, lo- love is, is about desire, you know, and, and I think that the, the romantic lens here is actually a really good one to use. You know, why is it that we just can fall head over heels in love with another person in a romantic way? Uh, but not just romantically. Um, you know, we, we, we can just be, become, some people have gravitas and, and we're just, you know, we're just attracted to them. Uh, and we don't often pause and ask why. And I think that line about, you know, falling, nobody rises up into it. It's getting at, there's some force, you know, there's some force out there. That um we often don't understand that it obviously exerts a huge effect on us as human beings, um, where we can rush headlong into new jobs, um, we can fall in love with them, right, just like we can with people. Uh, and then we're surprised when sometimes you know the love, so to speak, or the desire goes away. and Gerard's insight is that because the nature the fundamental nature of desire is mimetic the vast majority of things that we pursue objects that we desire uh, there is some model that is that is exerting an influence on us in some way and often that model of desire is hidden it's hidden from us and if we don't know who the model is then we're totally surprised, right? Um, if we think that desire just happens spontaneously and we don't have an awareness of this, then we're like totally surprised and it feels like whiplash. So let me just give you kind of a, 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 a couple examples. Girard made his fundamental discovery of mimetic desire by reading literature. He read classic literature. And uh, Stendhal, uh, Dost- Dostoevsky, um Cervantes, um, a lot of French literature because Girard was French. So a lot of classical French literature, uh, the red and the black. um, And he noticed that the characters in these stories never spontaneously desire anything. So in these great works of literature, they're they're so realistic to us and they resonate so much with us because they're getting at something true about how desire works. Now, whether these authors realize it explicitly or not is not the point. The point is that they created characters whose desires seem to be shaped by other characters. In other words, desire is relational. So it doesn't, like, my desire is not generated from within me, like ex nihilo, out of nothing. The desire is generated based on relationships with other people. And he saw that this happens in those novels. So there's there's characters, right? Like, Don Quixote reads this tale, is sitting alone in his room about this knight. And all of a sudden, he 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 wants to become the knight errant, and he and he does. So, uh, and he 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 sort of found this pattern endures across all of these works of literature. And then, of course, he said, "Huh, I wonder if this is something. This is getting at something true." So he looked in the culture, he looked into history, he looked everywhere, and he found he found the phenomenon of mimetic desire. Like everywhere he looked, and then he looked inside of himself, and he's like, "Huh." Yeah, this is true. If I'm, if I'm really honest with myself, you know, this is what's going on in my life. And one of the stories that he told, he recalled this time that I can relate to this incident where, you know, in his 20s, when he was a student, he, he started dating a woman and started to fall in love with her. And she asked him to, to marry her and it kind of spooked him out a little bit. And he, he, he withdrew himself. And said, "I'm not ready for that." And he, and he backed away. But as soon as a week or two later I don't have all the details of the story, because he was a little vague in the way that he told it um, you know, a, a, another, another man comes on the scene, and you know she starts dating other guys, and they're expressing interest in her. And he said, all of a sudden. I was just immediately drawn back to her in this irresistible way because now I had other other models of desire and he realized that you know in a way he he was his desire was was on this kind of ebb and flow according to the different relationships and the way that they were affecting his desire and he realizes that he had to kind of gain some some distance from that so that he could see it for what it was you know, and this happens all the time in our lives, right? I mean, we think about even trivial things like, you know, the attractiveness of, of you know, a shirt in a store when there's a hundred shirts that look alike, you know, and then we, we have our cool friend go and start, you know, picks out one and, and just was crazy about it. And all of a sudden that shirt takes on an added desirability, right? That it didn't have before. So this happens across all different kinds of domains in life. And I think getting at the hidden models are important because if we don't know the hidden models, first of all, we're more easily manipulated uh, through everything from advertisements to just bad actors and and sort of people that maybe they've never heard the term mimetic desire before, but they still know how it works and they still play the games, right? Uh, And also it just gives us more intentionality. Like if we know who's influencing us in these ways, you know, we're not so
1: surprised when we have these fluctuations like this. You started my work on it, man and um, I wanted to thank you because I hadn't heard of mimetic desire before. I hadn't heard of mimesis, haven't heard of Girard. So I I learned so much from the book, but also I've started my own process of looking at what my models are, because I probably don't have typical models as I don't watch TV actually, because I I, actually, because I I prefer to read, so I watch very little TV. So I kind of avoid stuff like the news and the, the the newspapers and stuff. I'm aware of what's going on, but probably if there was a nuclear war today, I wouldn't have no idea because I haven't checked. You'd out be the a news goner. all day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd be a goner. would be like, the, or else I'd just walk out and go, "Where is everybody?" And there's there's hazmat suits everywhere. A um, bit cl- too close to the the, the, per- the current day, but I, I thought about something you said because you talked there about Girard's story of of chasing the girl. I loved in the book you talk about the cat uh, and the the attitude of the cat and you're like kind of go to brush the cat and the cat's like tail in the air, butt in the air, kind of like I'm too cool for you and you're like oh I really want to rub the cat now, but I I thought then as well what you talk about beautifully and and I loved your YouTube videos as well, the one about the toddlers in a playroom and if the one of the kids so they all have equal toys but they'll eventually converge around one toy based on who shows that toy the most attention i thought that was fascinating because this is the origin of it
0: yes so if you put a bunch of toddlers in a room with with toys one of them for whatever reason you know will pick up the shiny red fire truck and start playing with it and show this fascination with it Uh, and maybe it's just because you know she loves the color red or you know her dad's a fireman or whatever okay so um, there may not have been a model for that particular, you know, attraction, right? But depending on depending on who she is, depending on the level of desire that she shows for this and, um, you know, the, the, the fuss she makes over the toy, sure enough, you know, the, like the other kids will, will begin to converge on the single toy. And there's only one toy. And there are three, four, five kids, and and the more the more kids come over, right? The more that there's some object of fascination. This is the way that 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 we operate, right? Like if you see a bunch of if you're walking down the sidewalk and you see a bunch of people that are just like huddled around, like watching something, and they're just like wide eyed and have looks of amazement on their face, we can hardly resist walking over there to see what they're looking at. I mean, I you I think we both lived in New York. You know, and, and this happens all the time. And it, maybe there's like some break dancers doing some really cool stuff or, or an artist. And we're just generally attracted. Like th- that desire is contagious. And this is Gerard's insight is that desire works by contagion and it works by imitation. So, you know, three, four, five children will come huddle around that toy. Uh, and the more there are, the easier it is for the next one to join. But again, there's only one toy. So Gerard's insight: the next step here in this process of thinking about mimetic desire is, well, what if desire is mimetic? Well, what does that mean? Well, the logical consequence is that this is perhaps the root of conflict and tension in in humans and in our culture, because we're desiring mimetically this one thing, and now we've we've just made ourselves in a, in essence a, a rival to the other person who's pursuing it. The other girl who's got who's holding the truck in her hands, and you watch the toddlers, and many times they start fighting over the toy, and it's like, what are you doing? There's like a hundred toys in this room, but everybody wants the one toy, and the more that they want it, the the more it increases the desire for it, right? So like the 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 denial of like when we can't get something, it just makes us want it even more. That's why people play hard to get because because <laughs> there, there's there's like something very true in that. It's like a, a part something about human nature like makes. Desire is like inversely correlated, right, with, with the ease with which something is to get. So I think like Gerard's insight is that mimetic desire explains why we get drawn into to kind of unnecessary competition and rivalry and, and, and conflict. So while the, you know, the toddler story is, is kind of fun, um, there's actually kind of a, a dark side to it. I mean, it's harmless with the toddlers, <laughs> but we also have to realize that, you know, we this behavior is, is actually in us too. And as adults, you know, we're not fighting over a, a little, you know, shiny red toy, we might be fighting over,
1: you know, job positions, or popularity, or our spouses or, or, or whatever. I found this really interesting in, if you think about friends, say, say, for example, Luke and Aiden go to the same school, grow up together, we, we both go our separate ways, You you become a a founder, I go and I work for the man, right? <laughs> I work in a in a legacy organisation. But then I decide, actually, I'm going to go out and do my own thing and do a startup. And actually, it's going to be in the same field as you, you have one already in in health and nutrition, I'm going to do one too, man. And all of a sudden, the hairs on the back of your neck start to raise and you're like, kind of going shit, shit, what if he's good at it? You know, what, what's he doing invading my space here? And then you're kind of not that supportive of me all of a sudden. And and I, I thought about that, Luke, bringing it into many of the organisations you and I work with, the, the type of organisations trying to change the mindset, because they have a very competitive, internally mindset more than externally. So they compete more with the gr- guy or girl up the hall than they do with an external competitor. And you said that those who want the same things are willing to destroy one another to get them, even if it means destroying themselves in the process. People don't fight because they're different. They fight because they want the same things. That spoke to me in so many ways. I thought of industries such as the media industry, for example, I I worked in it. And I often thought about the newspapers that if they collaborated and created a universal search engine amongst themselves, they would do better. And then they could, you know, not have access from Google. and, And therefore they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have bundled or atomized their content. And then I also thought about, you know, what Steve Jobs did with the iTunes store is that the labels couldn't collaborate, but they'd rather fight with each other. And then along comes somebody who actually offers a common platform. And because they're not seen as a competitor, they go and they work towards that. There's a lot in that to unbundle, but that really dawned on me when I read this passage. Mm.
0: Yeah, we've heard the saying, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. But I would say in Gerard's language, that similarity breeds contempt too. It's the people that are more similar to us that that are more of a threat to us, um, who are more likely to become models of desire and 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 rivals. Um, So it's like you 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 know are playing rugby and you're an athlete, um, and you know people that are in the business world or your friends that you grew up with, you know they're they're you just win you're you're live a different life, Uh, and then all of a sudden it's like well you're not an athlete anymore now you're in the business world, and I've experienced this in my life too, right? It's like. In a company, somebody all of a sudden moves into my department and I have a total, my perception of them totally changes where like, oh, before it was like Steve and, you know, he works in this totally separate division of the company with totally different goals and incentives and bonus pools. And, you know, we could go out for drinks after work and have a great time and chat, you know, Um, but all of a sudden, you know, when he's, he's rising up the ranks and he moves into my division of the company now. Like I'm a little careful of what I share with him when we go out for beers after work. <laughs> if and, you if and,
1: you go for a beer at all, like. yeah, if we do at all, right? So
0: like this happened. This happens all the time, and this is related to something that Gerard said about the, you know two different kinds of models. There's there are models that are outside of our world because they're in a different part of the company. They they're just in a different lifestyle or career because they're dead, um, because they're fictional, right? Just. In some way, there's just some kind of a barrier that exists between us and them, uh, and they're they're so they're not threatening to us. And these go by many names, you know. We we role models, right? Children have role models. These are obviously people that are outside of their world. Um, but then the other kind of model is what Gerard says. You know, we almost never realize, and he says these are the ones that are inside of our world, and he calls them internal mediators of desire. It's an academic phrase uh, internal mediators. And by the word internal, he just means like they're, they're inside of our own world. And yet they're, they're, they're affecting our desires, right? They're mediating desire to us for different things, different interests, different opportunities. And those are the really hard ones to understand. And people move can move, you know, as we just talked about, right. From, from one of those worlds to the other one, from outside to inside, um, or from inside to outside. And you know this is a really important dynamic to understand. So as I was learning about uh, mimetic theory, this distinction between the two worlds and the two different kinds of models was was one of the most important things for me to grasp. Because I was like, oh, it's really easy for me to like point to people out there, you know, that I really admire that I want to emulate. Um, but like, it's a lot harder to kind of like notice like people that are kind of you know uh, closer to me. Um, that are uh, that are affecting me in various ways, maybe just people I follow on Twitter, even, right? Like, and just like having an awareness about
1: how they're affecting me is really important. I found that p- piece so useful man for for personally for really, as I, I use that word sculpting sculpting away at myself to go what's why are you doing this? Like, it really helps you uncover purpose. And I do executive coaching. And I know you do coaching in, in companies as well. And the idea of of finding out well what's the desire behind that who who's the model who 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 are you either trying to impress or emulate in some way is really really useful. But I find through that work that many people don't want to do that. They actually want to jump to goals and achieve the vision, and they're kind of going yeah yeah yeah. But I want to achieve my vision. You're kind of going but why? Because you need you need to understand th- the desire behind it. You need to understand the purpose behind it because that will help you make better decisions as you navigate towards your vision you know we're incarnate creatures you know we're bodily and we're physical
0: and maybe it's just because i'm pretty like aristotelian here but i i I think it's really important for us to have like really concrete models and i i I think that we all do That's that's a better way to put it um and if if people uh have this abstract vision or abstract idea of who they want to be or what their career to look like or what they want it to look like. Uh, I often push them, you know, like, well, well, who what who might embody some of that? Right. And like, like, who who's a person? And, and you know, a lot of some people are resistant to do that. Well, you know, like my vision's totally different. There's nothing out there that exists like that. I'm like, well, maybe that's true. So let's do an amalgamation of different models, right? Like take take a trait from this person, trait from this person. You go any, anybody in history, right? Like let's let's begin to like think seriously about like what it is. Um, I think that's a really important process to go through because we, we we really need the concrete, you know. And sometimes I think we 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 fool ourselves with higher and higher levels of abstraction, yet. You know we're 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 very incarnate creatures, and that those concrete examples, especially the ones that are really close to us, exert a
1: massive influence on us. It's funny. I, I um I thought about that, that. You know, one of the people I write about in my book is Arnold Schwarzenegger, and the the reason is one of one of the things was his vision was so clear, and it was it was literally written for him as a 13 year old when he discovered a a magazine cover with this guy, Reg Park, who had become the youngest ever Mr. Universe, who went on to be an actor (laughs) sound familiar. And And he read this and he was like, Oh, I'm gonna do that. And what I loved about was the clarity of vision for him as as a child. Now, I thought then about in sport, in sport, and this is no disrespect to sports players is that often if you're not the greatest thinker, you can often be a much better player because you're you're it's instinctive, it's internal navigation right of the pitch or the the f- football field, whatever it is, because you're not thinking and you're not overthinking. And, and I thought about that, which when you talked about the uh, abstraction, oftentimes, we do that to ourselves when we're trying to go for a vision, that's more quanti- quantum quantum <laughs> of a vision, it's not it's not really fully formed yet, we're still forming it. And we tried then to jump straight to how do we get there a kind of uh, a a Newtonian world, which is actually very physical. And and in doing that, we break division because we're like too much into the centre. And this is what you're saying is that we we overcomplicate things.
0: I mean, this is great. Uh, so maybe this explains why I was never that great of an athlete. I'll just, I, I could tell my friends I was just a really great thinker. I, was, I just was too good of a thinker. <laughs> that's what I tell that's myself. Why I, <laughs> I hope I've uh, given you a model yeah. here. All right, this show's me. over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a great insight. I, but I think it's true. I think it's true in sports. And I think it's true in, in so many domains of life, though. I mean, when it comes to, like, let's take you know, business. Um, you know, we, we've in a, at a certain level, uh, I'm in, I'm, I come, you know, I spent most of my time in the startup world. Right. And at a certain level, there's not much of a place for, uh, thinking too much about big ideas or reading a lot of books because the, the, it's a hustle culture. You got to be working 80 to 90 hour weeks. Like who the hell has time to be reading like Classical philosophy and René Girard. Yeah, wuss. Luke's you know, reading. <laughs> Luke, <laughs> Luke's Luke's
1: lost it, man. He's reading some yeah. Girard guy.
0: Well, no, you get no cred for that. No. In, in that in the world that I come from, you know, um, cause, because because the, there is like the idea of doing, doing, doing. Action is what is is what's valuable. Like constantly be building the valuation. Like and like what what use does does this wisdom have? Right. I mean, it, this this is one of the issues. I mean, it doesn't have a lot of like real immediate um, you know reward in in a in the worldly sense in terms of like you know increasing my my salary or the value of my company by like understanding right some of these concepts i mean i'll i'll argue that it it long term this is a very good thing and that it it does help in so many different ways but short term it's not always it's not always clear and there is that sense that sometimes like the 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 best business people the best entrepreneurs are are those who like uh are kind of more like the great athlete right that 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 are just able to kind of operate on instinct and go 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 and the danger there is not realizing uh the different forces that that are still at work and because we're going so fast and so hard and we don't take any time for reflection and introspection you know we and, and we think of ourselves as so independent you know and and we're our, our own men and and we're you know we're, we're free thinkers and all of this stuff it's almost like the more that we 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 believe that right this Gerard calls it the romantic lie, the more susceptible we can be to getting drawn in to the kinds of things that that we've been talking about,
1: Luke, I was thinking here about how. Mimetic desire brings us together, but then you say it then pushes us apart, almost like Girard chasing after the, the, the lady who's playing hard to get. But then when he gets there, and he kind of loses interest once he ha- once he has her in his grasp again, if nobody else has shown attention to her. But but you talk also about if we understand this, we can also harness it. And you mentioned earlier on Peter Thiel. He was also somebody you interviewed for the book and became to, got to know quite well. But he was a student of Girard and his understanding of mimetic desire has made him has given him a superpower in his world of investment. It's why he invested in Facebook. I'd love if you brought us through that. But then also that he realized when they formed pay, PayPal between him and Musk, that actually fighting each other was going to destroy them. Actually, if they collaborated, they could build something meaningful, which became PayPal. This is uh
0: there's, there's a positive sense and a negative sense to which we can uh, Harness mimetic desire in positive uh, and I would call preventative ways. So in the positive sense, every company in a way uh, has to harness mimetic desire for whatever it's doing, you know, Um, that's really the only way to grow quickly. So one of my favorite thinkers out there in the VC entrepreneurship world is Gary Tan of, of initialized capital, and he's kind of fond of saying that like today every company is a meme, like every, every you know every company has to create some meme in order to kind of replicate and to, and to grow. And Gary and I had a conversation and kind of came to this understanding and agreement that well, in fact, every company has to be mimetic. Uh, and, and and learn how to kind of harness the power of mimetic desire so that you know they can create a ripple effect like you know one person's desire for for this product or service um, you know is contagious and leads to other people becoming interested in it interested in it and, and, and having the same desire. And companies can be intentional about accelerating uh, mimetic desire for things like make I mean this is basic, right like making things easily shareable. Um, you know, incentivizing, you know, people to express their desire for w- for whatever the thing is. And Peter Thiel realized very quickly that, you know, Facebook was essentially an engine of mimetic desire. You know, the, the way that Facebook works, uh, it it's if your friends are on want to be on Facebook, you know, it, it just grows exponentially. And it, very importantly, Facebook started out at prestigious college campuses in the U.S., at Harvard and then it very selectively went to other college campuses. And this is the key point about why I think Peter Thiel uh, saw the power of Facebook. It wasn't just like indiscriminately generating mimetic desire. It was generating mimetic desire inside of these very specific closed environments where there was a high degree of similarity. This is the the world I man we talked about the two different worlds. There's the external world and the internal world. The internal one I, I call Freshmanistan because yeah. it's kind <laughs> of find- like being a, being a freshman in high school or college. So Facebook was going into these little worlds, these little college campuses. And that's a powerful thing, man. I mean, you get 5%, 10% of your class using wanting to be on Facebook, and the other ones just can't stand it. And Facebook they they showed these crazy freakish numbers where like within just a couple of months of being on a on a campus they had like some crazy like 90% plus adoption rate you know and that's the power of memetic desire within that the this, the the world where everybody's very similar and facebook was able to take that to their investors i mean i mean that's like a no brainer right you show that kind of adoption and power so teal saw that you know, and he said, I bet on mimesis. Like, I, I, I understood mimetic desire and the way that this works. And it helped him see why, fi- why Facebook was going to be so powerful. On the flip side, you know, when, when Teal started uh, PayPal, uh, he, he saw that mimetic desire was working in the negative sense, where, where now you have people inside the same company who are competing over the same, you know, prestigious titles and the same tasks and he saw that, you know, a lot of this rivalry, a lot of the competition inside of PayPal in the early days was driven through mimetic rivalry. It was mimetic rivalry. And again, you know, because he he had this mental model, he had this framework and he was like, oh, like these guys are are, are just attracted to doing this one thing because the other one is and the more the other one wants it, the more the other one. And they're just like reinforcing, you know, this desire for this thing that actually doesn't even matter for the success of the company. <laughs> and and he took steps because he saw that, he took steps to to diffuse and prevent the rivalry. He gave everybody very specific tasks to do. He made sure that he just eliminated the possibility for people to do that as much as possible.
1: I love that man. I it really, if you think of Facebook first, the the it's it's a scalable digital version of keeping up with the Joneses if it's if it's if the data is played out that way so like you say i live next door to you in the past you're luke jones and i I, and my wife looks over and goes oh the jones has got a new lawnmower and straight away i kind of go "Is that mean she wants we us to have a new lawnmower (laughs) And, and the the modern version is today is like going oh i see the Joneses, the Burgesses are going on holidays to Hawaii, and I'm going Oh, does that mean she wants holiday? And then all of a sudden, that's in and then it becomes this kind of because it's localized as well, but in a virtual world. But I, I wanted to take that because you you beautifully go back to the origins of this. And I didn't know it was, you know, it was probably always there, this whole idea of, of some type of PR in some sense, as we evolved throughout the ages. But you talk about Bernays, and the origin of PR. And you tell us that Bernays seemed to understand that desire requires models. And you talk here about the origins of making smoking sexy for women. This really encapsulated for me, this was a great model for me to get my head around. So
0: the story of Eddie Bernays is fascinating. Um, Eddie Bernays, you know, cut his teeth in the early 20th century, got a start around 1919. And is really considered the, the father of modern-day PR. He was the nephew of Sigmund Freud um, and you know integrated a lot of ideas of Freudian psychology into his work. And by the way, when he kind of invented this field of what we know as modern-day public relations, uh, he, he didn't call it public relations. He called it propaganda. Uh, and that's, that's the name of one of Eddie Bernays' books. And in the late 20s, he was hired... I mean, he just became a master at at basically organizing public campaigns on behalf of of entities, on behalf of the U.S. government to drum up support for World War One, um, on behalf of American pork companies to get people to eat more bacon at breakfast. And every time he would engage in one of these campaigns, he would always have the tactic of like finding you know models to be able to, you know, like a doctor in the case of why you should eat more bacon at breakfast, right? Um, And like people really listen to these people. So he he kind of inherently knew that in order to to generate the kind of interest and desire in something, he he needed models. The, The most famous and interesting story is the way that Bernays was hired by the American Tobacco Company to try to encourage more women to smoke. So, you know, a lot of, you know, young American men went away to World War One, and, you know, the horrors of war. They, they actually included cigarettes in their rations. And, you know, they many men took up smoking during the war. So fast forward to the 1920s in the U.S., uh, a lot of men smoked, but not many women smoked. It was totally taboo for them to smoke in public. So it, this was a manly activity, like men would make fun of women that smoked in public and American Tobacco Company was like, well, how do we break this taboo? How do we get more women to smoke, right? They saw this as a massive profit potential, and they hired Bernays. And the tactic that he took, in my view, is he hacked mimetic desire, in a sense. And he, I'll tell you how he did it, because I, I think this story is, really brings everything together. He, at the time, in this is 1929, when Bernays was hired by the American Tobacco Company, uh, maker of Lucky Strikes. Uh, Bernays was, wanted to try to get as many women to smoke Lucky Strikes as possible. And the most important event that happened every year in New York City was the Easter Day Parade in 1929. I mean, it, it was the equivalent of the Super Bowl in 1929. Like everybody paraded down Fifth Avenue. They came out of the church in the morning and they wore their best outfits and they paraded down Fifth Avenue and all eyes were on them. And he realized that this was the opportunity that he'd been waiting for. Like this was the Super Bowl. So he, he really wanted to use this to stage some event that would help, you know, break the taboo of women smoking in public. So what he did is he very meticulously and carefully recruited um, 10 very, very good looking, well-dressed women, some fashion models. One of them was a secretary to be planted at various places along the route of of the Easter Day Parade in 1929. He gave them all packs of Lucky Strike cigarettes that they had hidden somewhere on them. And he had all kinds of cues and signals ready to go. So at a given time, when they got the cue, they would whip out the Lucky Strike cigarettes and they would strut down Fifth Avenue and and just light right up. And he he even had journalists and reporters ready to take pictures, ready to go the moment that they lit up. And it was orchestrated in such a way that they looked like they didn't know each other. that it you know, it, it looked like this was happening totally spontaneously, right? Now remember, the romantic lie, you know, is is that our desires are totally spontaneous. But what Gerard did is he he knew that that's not true. So he was providing models of of desire, models of smoking, women that seemed like they were spontaneously deciding to just break the taboo. Screw it, I'm just going to light up, and they all did it around the same time. And sure enough, that that action was you know contagious. Um, you know, other other women began to light up and say, "Well, she's doing it. I'm going to do it too." and this was an act of defiance against the taboo this was an act of defiance against all the men that told them that they shouldn't be smoking in public um and not that many smoked in private even but especially in public and sure enough the next day the headlines also carefully orchestrated by bernays himself were torches of freedom you know the women are smoking torches of freedom plastered across all the major newspapers in the US went syndicated and that was a meme phrase that took off. Like, who doesn't want to be on the side of freedom, right? You're against freedom. Nobody wants to be against that. Uh, just, just a genius move from a PR standpoint. I mean, never mind the kind of manipulation that was going on. And that, the, the, within the next 10 years, a massive amount of women began smoking. And there was this, this contagion of desire because now there was a model. And Bernays had carefully held these models up for the world to see. And that's all it really took. You know, the, the power of a model, we can never underestimate that. Like, what are the odds that all of these people would independently just ha- make, make the decision to just take up smoking Lucky Strikes, specifically <laughs> Lucky Strikes, right? Uh, so just a fascinating story really of, 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 I think, how Bernays understood mimetic desire and rivalry and kind of used it to, to
1: his advantage to get what he wanted. If you think about the fragmentation in media, and how it would have been easier for Bernays if he knew, for example, everybody watched, uh, I don't know, Bewitched, or some show the you know, the, the, the Hulk or something in the, in the 60s, he could target that specific show. So he was was guaranteed a mass audience at once. And the fragmentation in, in media means that people have to go and find these more. But also, it means that you can also target a more similar group. And I think that's often overlooked in marketing, it's, it's actually a great gift to understand mimesis, because then you can actually if you want to use it, I mean, it's like the force, you can use it for good or, or otherwise. But former guest of the show, NYU Stearns, Scott Galloway talks about the big Four, the big four tech companies and how they tap into a deep needed a deep seated need in human desire and human nature. And you put Galloway's ideas into your own words. And I'm going to quote you here because you say Google is like a deity that answers our questions, read our prayers. Facebook satisfies our need for love and belonging. Amazon fulfills the need for security, allowing us instantaneous access to goods in abundance. They were there for us during COVID-19 to ensure our survival. And Apple appeals to our sex drive the need for status signaling one's attractiveness as a mate by associating a brand that is so innovative and forward thinking and costly to ourselves. And I loved how you phrased that. And I thought that was certainly worth exploring.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're they're tapping into, you know, human desires that we, we just don't really understand. And I think that's what Scott's work is kind of all about, right? He's, he's sort of getting under the, the surface layers of why we think that we want these things. You know, and if you ask most people why they buy an Apple product, I mean, I'm, I'm on a MacBook right now and I have, I have all kinds of Apple products. You know, we typically give, um, you know, the specs and the qualities and, you know, why the processor is better and all of these things. Uh, somewhat related to Simon Sinek's work, right? Like there's, it's actually appealing to something much deeper than that. And, you know, I have sort of viewed all of this from the lens of, of mimetic desire and the way that, you know, not understanding our desires and the nature of them and how they work, um, you know, like, like Bernays did, I mean, it, it leaves us sort of like more susceptible to, um, you know, to just getting, getting pulled into these deep relationships with various brands uh, without understanding the you know the the, the forces at work underneath
1: it for why, I wanted to move on to a really important aspect for this show because you talk a lot about scapegoats and and Girard does as well, and I'd love to share deeper about this because I often think about how the idea of chaos and order. So K order, we've had D. hawk on the show, he's been we did a seven part series with us, he he introduced the idea of K order, that everything kind of is in this spiral of chaos, then order, they chaos, then order. And I thought about that, when when, when memetic desire does that, where it kind of brings people together, then they compete, and then it breaks them up again. And you talk about this, that often a way to save the the society is to create a scapegoat. I often think about that movie. I don't know if you've seen wag the dog with Robert De Niro, Dustin Hoffman, I haven't it's, seen it. Oh, man, you will love it. Because because essentially, they create a war from a, a made up country. And they, they have a whole director, etc. Woody Allen's in it as well. It's fantastic. It was actually, it's very hard to get because it's so realistic in its story. But it but it's essentially that things are so chaotic. The president is accused of 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 some uh, some negative affairs, and then there's a distraction, and it creates this outside war that brings us closer together. and And I thought about the scapegoat there because the same thing happens in large organizations with innovators and changemakers and catalysts. Oftentimes, the place is all fighting, its silo versus silo. Uh, an innovator or a head of innovation or some type of changemaker comes in and they start to mediate things, start to bring them together, but then they become the threat. And then the silos turn on the changemaker. And oftentimes, the changemaker is the scapegoat. That will tee you up nicely for introducing the scapegoat. And you dedicate a lot of time to this, as does Gerard. It's such an important aspect.
0: Yeah, it's so important to understand. Um, the scapegoat mechanism is a key part of mimetic theory. And traditionally and, and Gerard was a historian. And he just noticed that time and time again, the way that societies in chaos resolve their chaos is by finding somebody, usually an outsider, to transfer all of the blame to and expel or kill uh, and just get rid of in some way. And this he calls the scapegoat mechanism. And the reason that it, that it, has worked as kind of a social innovation, um, as bad as it as it is, as terrifying as it is. The functional purpose of creating scapegoats is to unite people who were formerly um, kind of just in a rivalrous mimetic relationship. So rather than facing each other and facing off against each other, um, they're able to kind of unite and turn. And all focus their attention on one person or on one country, uh, on whatever it is that's being a group that's being blamed, um, and it allows them to kind of transfer transfer their um, their tensions and their aggression onto a onto a single person or group that absorbs it and absolves them of the responsibility of actually doing anything about it, and directs the conflict and the problem onto, onto one person who has to bear the brunt of it. Okay. And maybe that person is fired. That person is, is blamed. Sports teams do this all the time. Like one player or one coach is, is let go. And there's like a math to this, right? Like then the math is better that, you know, the infection, um, get channeled into one person and one person has to deal with it than having, you know, a hundred or a thousand or a million sort of infected, so to speak so it's it's a way to kind of take this infection put it all into one person and then the people have the illusion that they that you know they that they've identified the problem and they they rooted it out and it gives them this brief moment of of unification because they all agree on the problem and by the way that agreement happens mimetically too so the 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 very choice of the scapegoat happens through the kind of contagion of, of consensus because nobody's willing to speak up and say, oh, actually it might not be that person because once 100 or 200 people all seem like they're on the same page, it's really scary, it's really hard to be the one to speak up and say, no, m- maybe we need to do some self-examination. So it brings, it, it unifies them, it brings a moment of catharsis, it feels really good to feel like you've identified the problem. And, but it's illusory, and it, it it provides temporary peace, but then the cycle starts right back over again because the root problem was never actually addressed. And when I look at businesses, when I'm talking to companies, um everybody wants a scapegoat. I right? mean, come in from the outside and they kind of want to be told like Here's the very specific problem. Do this one thing, get rid of this you know, person or this department, and then all will be, all will be well. Um, nobody really wants to confront some of the more structural things, the, the, the toxic relationships or cultural things um, that take more time, frankly, to work through and might involve a little bit of pain to kind of work through uh, in, a, in, a, in the long term. The scapegoats are just the easy, easy solution. And humans have used the scapegoat mechanism in in horrific ways throughout history. And, you know, we see it on a micro level in in our lives. We see it on social media. We see it within companies. And just being aware that it's our go-to method for resolving chaos and conflict, that is important because we can realize when we ourselves are getting caught up in that, that tendency to
1: just shift the blame to, to somebody else. Gave me a great model mental model for understanding some phenomenon. Like, for example, I mentioned media, There, media should have for years before a a Google ever appeared, or a Facebook started offering, you know, advertising and started selling audience back to the the media channels, that they should have come together, and they should have worked together because this was an inevitable chaos that was going to happen. And they should have brought order before the chaos ever happened. And what they do now is they blame Facebook and Google for stealing all their revenue. So they have in in a way something to have as a common enemy. So it brings them together. And then they create, you know, new alliances, etc, that they should have done long before the same with Spotify, for example, Spotify in the early days wasn't really a threat. So everybody took their eye off it. The labels should have came together and created their own version, but they wouldn't work together. And then Spotify only starts to take off when the labels invest in Spotify. I think those kind of models are really useful using your framework, which was so helpful for me. But I I really wanted to share one uh, story. And and I'd love you to go deep into this one, perhaps as our last story. Because you say the contagion of desire isn't always a bad thing. When mimetic desire grows strong enough, there is always a pivotal point, it can go in one of two directions. It can either become a cycle of positive desire in which healthy desires gain momentum and leads to other healthy desires which unite people in positive ways, or it can feed into a negative cycle of destruction, des- destructive desire in which mimetic rivalries lead to conflict. And here you describe the brilliant story of Ferrari versus Lamborghini. Many people won't know this story. I think it's a beautiful one. And I loved how you framed it for the book.
0: I am a big fan of both vehicles, actually. <laughs> uh, I've, I've never drove either one, um, but I do think they're beautiful. Um, you know, now they've become kind of these, you know, symbols of, of status and luxury. But there's actually a, a wonderful backstory to, to how Lamborghini came to be in the first place. Ferrari um, has been around long before Lamborghini and had this reputation of, you know, being the best racing cars. And Ferruccio Lamborghini was a just a tractor maker in Italy in the early part of the 20th century and it grew a very successful tractor business. I think the Lamborghini was the number one selling tractor in all of Italy. He it became a successful businessman and bought himself a Ferrari. And uh, I think he had a couple Ferraris actually. And lived not far from where the Lamborghini factory was. And he took his Ferrari out for spins and kept having problems with the clutch. He would, he would throw out the clutch all the time. And then he'd have to go get it repaired. And to get it repaired, he'd have to take it to the Ferrari factory. They would charge him an arm and a leg and give him a new clutch. And six months later, the, the clutch would be, would be burnt again. And he'd have to go get a new one. So he finally got totally fed up with this. He took it back to his tractor factory, and he had his engineers open the the hood finally of this car and try to get to the bottom of it. And they found out that Ferrari was using the same clutch that he was in his tractors, and that you know that the, the clutch you know just it, what didn't didn't fit the car, and he was overcharging him for the clutch. So Lamborghini, you know, took up one of the the best clutches that he had for his biggest tractor, it was a little more sturdier, and he put it in the car. And, you know, you take it out racing against the, the Ferrari drivers that used to test their, their cars on the track near the factory. And uh, he souped up his car a little bit. So his, his Ferrari ended up beating the, the Ferrari straight out of the factory. So he'd, he'd already, you know, worked on his car and, and, and turned it into a, uh, a better one. And he just couldn't help himself. He had to go tell Ferrari what he thought. And, and tell him about this problem with the clutches so he finally gets an audience with the great Enzo Ferrari and Ferrari you know tells Lamborghini that well he just doesn't know how to drive a Ferrari probably and that's the reason he kept breaking the clutches and uh you know he should just stick to making tractors so Lamborghini left the office and he said you know damn it um that's the fire that I needed in order to, to, do, to do something about this, about this problem. Right. So Lamborghini decided to get into the car business and he said, you know, I'm going to make a car and I'm going to make, um, Ferrari was just known as a racing primarily as a racing car. It wasn't really a touring car, the kind of car that you'd want to take long road trips with that you could throw luggage in the back seat of, or in the trunk. Lamborghini said, I'm going to combine that the, the power and performance of a Ferrari with the luxury of a, of a world-class touring car. And I'm going to make it beautiful and I'm going to make it perform even better. And it was the rivalry. I mean, frankly, it was just the rivalry with Enzo Ferrari that drove him to, to have the desire to start a car company in the first place. The thought hadn't crossed his mind until he himself got a Ferrari and started having problems with it. So this was, you know, where Lamborghini was, was born in the early 60s. And, you know, he produced a car within just a few years, uh, won all kinds of awards. And, you know, we all know where Lamborghini is today. It's still a heavily sought after vehicle. Uh, but the important part about the story is that the rivalry with Ferrari, the mimetic desire which caused him to want to build a car was a tremendously positive thing. In the sense that we, we wouldn't have this car had it not been for that. And it led to innovation. And this is an important thing to realize. Like we're mimetic creatures. And you know, mimetic desire is is what leads us to, to be it's why we we push ourselves, right? And we we see somebody at a, performing at a high level and we desire to do that too. So, it's a tremendously positive thing, and as as you know, Aiden I spend a whole second half of the book talking about all of the positive ways that we can live in a world as as you know mimetic people. so you know the a, a car was born, a new wonderful company was born out of that desire that was you know adopted from Ferrari and the rivalry. But at a certain point, Lamborghini realized that if this whole thing was just about you know, getting revenge on Enzo Ferrari—that it would end badly uh, if 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 it just became about the personal rivalry. Like, where does that end? You know, I mean, it, where does it end? I mean, eventually, if Ferrari, you know, wins a race, then Lamborghini has to win the race, and it just became comes like a, an infinite game of one-upmanship and destructive rivalry. And he he would just forget. What he was interested in the first place, which was just in creating this this new kind of high performance, beautiful vehicle that you know could, you could go on long road trips with. So the, the mimetic desire can lead to to tremendous things. Uh, it can lead us to in, into it can lead us to innovate, but we just have to be able to draw the line between the positive and the negative. And Lamborghini was eventually able to realize that all of his people in the company were kind of pushing him to to enter all the races and like, damn it. You know, we, we can beat Ferrari in, in the races today. It's like formula one. I don't really know what it was called back then, but you know, Lamborghini said no, because that, that is a game that that never ends. And Lamborghini being a huge fan of bullfighting his whole life said, if I do that and his nickname was the bull, basically. And he said, if I do that, I will I will become like the bull. And the bull always dies in the end, um, really from pure exhaustion, right? Just from pure exhaustion of constantly chasing the next thing. And I, I just thought that was a beautiful imagery of what kind of the, the mimetic rivalries and, and models can become for us because there's no end. There's always another one. There's always another thing to do. And the, the self-awareness of Lamborghini to sort of see see himself as the bull and realizing that that wasn't going to ultimately lead him to a fulfilling end to his life, he, he opted out of the, of that game and they focused on their cars. They, they didn't enter the racing circuit for a while. He retired to a, a beautiful, he started his own vineyard, um, still around to this day, which you can visit in Italy. Uh, I lived there for a few years, but unfortunately, I didn't make it to Lamborghini's place. And you know, retired peacefully and, and proud of his work. Um, and I, I just I thought it was a beautiful story that illustrated both the the positive aspects of of this mimetic drive that got him into the business, and the self awareness to know like where to draw the line, uh, when to pivot.
1: Beautiful, man. It's, it's why I wanted to finish on that story. I love how it, how it ends that way. And it's, it's a stepping away from the game because you see it's, it's going to end badly. And, uh, you know, I, I thought about that. One of the most liberating things for me has stopped caring what people think. Yes, I still want to do a good job when I'm, when I'm working. Yes, I want to still want to be friendly and, you know, people to get on well with me. But uh, ultimately, I'm not judging myself against them in any way. And it's so liberating. And I know you've gone on that journey yourself. Luke, I, I always pull a quote, an end quote that I love from the book, I've pulled one fr- from me, I'm going to share it. And then I'd love you to close today's show on your, your message for our audience. Just a reminder for our audience, I have a copy up for grabs, just sign up to the innovation newsletter, and you'll be in with a chance to win that. Luke, for people who want to find you find out more about the book, where can they find you? You can
0: find me at Lukeburgess.com. Uh, there's a lot of material that didn't make it into the book. It's, it's already a long book. Um, and all of the stuff that I, I just wasn't able to include uh, is, is on my website in my newsletter. So you can find me there. And, um, you know, please consider buying the book wherever you like to get your books from.
1: I will close with this quote, and then I'll hand it over to you, man. So this I absolutely love this one. In the positive cycle of desire, people respect the desires of others as they would their own. What's more, They take an active role in collaborating with others to help them achieve their single greatest desire. We are all in some sense midwives to the greatest desires of our neighbours. The simplest definition of love is wanting the good of another. Italians have a way of saying I love you. That is particularly instructive. Ti voglio bene. They say it means I want your good. I want what's best for you we have a responsibility to shape our own desires. As we've seen, we can't do that without others. That sounds like I said, others in a cow. (laughs) I'll say that again. As we've seen, we can't do that without others. The duty to shape our desires goes hand in hand with the responsibility to care for the relationships that we have with others. I absolutely loved that and I thought it was a lovely way to finish today's show. How would you what's the message you'd like to leave? You wrote this book for a purpose. Yes, it was a voyage of self-discovery, but what is the message you wanted to get across?
0: The message has to do with our shared responsibility and respect for for other people, frankly. And I've learned that so much of kind of our modern individualism ends up turning into one person trying to impose their will on another person and you know uh not really we have this idea that what we the the primacy of our own desires and you know that and that's the most important thing in life is to be able to get what we want uh come hell or high water and even if we're, we're willing to take shortcuts and to sacrifice the desires of other people in order to get what we want. And that mentality is a zero-sum game, right? It's a zero-sum game. And I've seen this in every place that I've ever worked. You know, we, we see this in politics, we see this in so many companies, where, you know, we're imposing our will. And our will is, is powerful. Um, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing, but other people have them too other people have desires too and in my life there's been this great sort of you know paradox and and something that took me many many years to learn and it's that as leaders as as what i call in the book transcendent leaders as people as as you know for me as 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 a husband and you know soon to be a father uh congratulations thank you thank you um not yet We're, we're not we're 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 getting there. We're not pregnant yet, but we're, (laughs) I just know it's, I expect it to be coming up soon. There's this, um, this awesome responsibility that we have as people to, and, and so satisfying and fulfilling to focus more on helping other people cultivate their own desires to identify and discern and fulfill them. Right. So there's this outward turn, whether that's my wife, whether that's, um, my colleague, my students, because I teach, um, you know, junior people at my company. Um, that's why I think mentorship is so, so powerful, right? It just, it fulfills this fundamental human responsibility that we have to help other people kind of fulfill their own desires. And then in doing so, um, oddly, paradoxically, we end up kind of coming to fulfill our own. So it's this, uh, total shift away from you know, thinking about myself and my own desires. That's the one thing that I would love people to come away with this book with. That you know, desire ultimately is kind of another word for love. And you know, at, at, if we take it far enough, this the, the, my book is about love. Um, you know, and and sort of there's superficial desires, and then as we begin to understand them more, um, what we want is what we what we most love. And you know, I'm trying to get us to look at business. Uh, to get us to look at human relationships as social and this awesome responsibility. We're all kind of woven together in this, in this web of desire. And, you know, the, the more that we are consumed with our own desires, um, the, the more, the easier it is to forget that. And this has all kinds of ramifications for business, um, for, for life in general. And I think, you know, if, if you, if you stay with me, uh, to the end of, of the book, at least, um, I think you'll see how mimetic desire is fundamentally about relationships, and whether that's work relationships, personal relationships, romantic relationships. Uh, taking the, the the focus away from our own desires onto others opens up this whole like universe to us, which can be incredibly powerful, incredibly fulfilling, and allow us to enter into just deeper and more intimate relationships with people that we we wouldn't have been able to do that if if the focus was on getting what we want.
1: Beautiful man author of Wanting The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life Luke Burgess Tivolio Bene Tivolio Bene thanks so much Aiden